0: Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Chloe Prendergast and I'm Emma Williams. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and we're so glad you've joined us today. Each episode of this podcast explores a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Today's
1: guest is our friend Alice Chance. I've known Alice since we were teenagers, singing together in Gondwana Chorale, an Australian national youth choir, and we've been great friends ever since. She's chosen to bring in a few pieces that have shaped her life as a composer.
0: Don't worry about trying to remember the pieces and recordings we talk about. They are in the show notes along with a link to a Spotify playlist. Thanks for joining us and enjoy our chat with Alice. Hey Alice. Hey. Do you mind starting by introducing yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Alice Chance. I am an artist who mainly um, composes music, but does all sorts of other things as well. I live in Sydney, Australia, and I've had blonde hair my whole life and only in the (laughs) last few months have decided to go anywhere from blue to brown to um, chocolatey red.
0: (laughs) Amazing. And how, how do you feel being a brunette now?
2: Well, it feels really good because I was always told, oh, your hair is, is perfect, never dye it. Um, and it was like this symbol of purity. Uh, mm. <laughs> and it was, yeah, really nice to liberate myself from feeling not allowed to do anything with it. Also, when I was five years old, I wanted to be a hairdresser and I cut all of it off. Um, mm. And then I have my first day at kindergarten and people thought I was a boy and it was this whole thing. Um, mm. And so it was since then it's been long and blonde up until like a few months ago. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> my inner five-year-old has taken the reins again. Yes. <laughs> so,
1: Alice, um, yeah. <laughs> you've got a few pieces for us today. Um, which one would you like to start with?
2: Uh, why don't we start with um, the Silver Stripe song? What's it actually Great. called? awesome. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, we did look it up. It's called Music Sounds Better With You by Stardust.
2: That's right. It's
1: 1998 right. classic.
0: Can you tell us about that song?
2: Yes. So Music Sounds Better With You by Stardust is a name that I recently learned for this song, which I always thought um, I named for myself when I was, uh, I guess, four years old. Um, I called it the Silver Stripes song. And that was really significant uh, for me because It's the first time I I think I said out loud that I could see music in a way in my head. Um, Mm. And also around that time or maybe, yeah, a little bit later, my mum started taking me to the doctor to ask about such (laughs) things. Um, But, yeah, that feels really significant for me. I remember being in the car at a certain uh, set of traffic lights um, and I said, and that song was playing on the radio, and I said to my mum, oh, it's the Silver stripe song. And she said, oh, why do um. you say that? And I was like, oh, it's got the Silver Stripes in it. And I think we were in a verse by that point, and she was like, I, I don't see them. And I was like, no, no, wait, just wait a little bit. And then it got to the chorus. <laughs> I was like, um, feels right, the music sounds better with you. <laughs> And that I actually <laughs> listened to it again recently, and I realized there's a little reverb on it. So it's was like, "Did it? Did it is is the actual yeah. rhythm, but my four-year-old mm. ears couldn't hear that, um, or it was probably uh. just the cast area Actually, I just heard it as you know, thing thing, um, yeah. and to me that was two diagonal glowing silver stripes that would flash up together like like train tracks on a kind of muted marbly grey background wow and so yeah that was and I don't really remember seeing anything else from the song it was just kind of like flash flash whenever that didn't mm. didn't synth came in yeah um and yeah I just I I think that song is really indicative of some of the kind of molten rainbowy synth colors that were in 90s pop music at the time and made it a kind of a trippy time to to grow up in a way listen to that kind of thing and yeah Yeah, yeah. I reckon that really really shaped me
0: um and can you tell the our listeners what why you see silver stripes like what is that
2: oh, called yeah. what is that <laughs> that would probably be some good information for people to have so yeah. um i have a i guess a condition either a, a gift i don't know it feels like a gift um, an ability yeah. an ability a superpower uh where yeah. i where i can see where it's like a cross sensory situation in the brain where something that you sense with one sense like maybe uh, touch taste or hearing translates to another ta- another sense so um for me that's always visual so hearing certain timbres certain pitches um or touching or tasting things um to me translates to a kind of artwork in the mind's eye it's not Clouding my vision, Mm. and so I could never kind of claim it, claim extra time for exams or something because there was a bird outside obscuring (laughs) my view. It's more, (laughs) it's like, uh, and I've chatted about this to other synesthetic friends. It's like compulsory imagination. So if someone says to you, Mm. imagine a red square that's kind of soft, maybe velvety, and it's um, pulsating on a like a really dark brown background, but it's like mm. not being told to do that, and it just happens.
1: Yeah, so you can't will yourself to see or hear those things. It just pops up.
2: Yeah, it just pops up. You can try to, you can try to maybe change it, and but it's a bit like a an adult getting involved with like a kid's drawing, and they kind of ruin it. Or something, <laughs> straighten yeah. the lines or something, and the kids <laughs> like, oh, I don't want to draw anymore. It's a little bit like yeah. that.
0: Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. enough. (laughs) Um, And this is this is called synesthesia.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called synesthesia. And I have this little theory that everyone has it when they're little. And I was Mm. just really lucky to have my mum pick up on it. And and she would ask, you know, what color are the letters of the alphabet? And I would write it out for her. And she would kind of test me every few months. To make sure I just wasn't wow. talking shit, basically, she would compare yeah. all the diagrams and and I think because it was encouraged in me, it's that's maybe a reason that it has kind of stuck around so vividly.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of like perfect pitch when you know yeah. kids sort of notice that early on, and then it's kind of trained into them. It's exactly that association. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you have it um, with listening, touch, taste, basically mm. all the senses kind of have a I guess have an association. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And have they changed throughout your life? The um, the colours and the sensations? Yeah,
2: I think they something interesting is that um, when I'm sleepy they're brighter and I often yeah. experience alarms more visually than um, Auditorily, uh, yeah. I just kind of like see this flurry of unpleasant color. And I'm like, oh, oh, well, yeah. the colors are nice, but the fact that they're there is not nice. I would have preferred yeah, yeah, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, definitely something strange happened with the letter A in the alphabet. Um, and A, I guess, is significant to me because it starts my name. Uh, but yeah. it was orange up until I was maybe 12, and then yeah. it went blue. Wow. I just blue. thought of the show Puberty Blues. It might, yeah. might be. Puberty
1: of <laughs> <and> the <laughs> synesthesia. Don't know. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that was, yeah, that was kind of the most significant change I can note. Also, depending on who I'm around, which is quite funny, I just feel mm. like my colours, I affectionately call them, they – Either feel safe to be really present, or maybe go into hiding, depending on kind of who I'm around, um, ah, or, or my mood, how I'm feeling. Um, and yeah. yeah, sometimes in the same way that you can that you can tune out noise, that you can tune out, and make it become background noise. I think you can totally just ignore the colors and tune them out. But mm. uh, yeah, sometimes they they just come and say hi.
0: And is it that? If the more safe and comfortable you feel, the more present they are? Is that yeah. sort of the – yeah, okay.
2: Yeah, the They're more cool. safe, the more more comfortable I feel, and also maybe the more playful I feel, the more, more invited mm-hmm. I feel to be myself. Maybe that's when they come out. Mm-hmm. And if I have to be an adult and, like, have a serious conversation. I like to have yeah. some serious conversations, but, you know, the, the non-fun yeah. serious conversations, I think that's when yeah. they come out. <laughs> get a bit shy
3: (laughs)
1: yeah so um when you're feeling really creative um because you're a composer how does synesthesia help you with your composing
2: uh I think well yeah I've often thought about the relationship between synesthesia and composing and I almost wish that the colors went together a bit better than they do like if I Mm. think about a it would have been so great to have had them uh, evolve so that colors, that chords that were friends, you know, that were related keys, were related colors. But that never mm. happened, <laughs> and so yeah. it's kind of they're all left over from learning the alphabet, really. Right. All the colors from um, yeah notes, and I, maybe other synesthesia musicians have that as well. Um, but I do find. That they work as little tags, maybe like say a, a motif that has a tonal center of E. I'll kind of maybe tag it with like a yellowy E color, mm-hmm. and that for an organizational reason. Um, yeah. But otherwise, it's, I wish it were like you know, abstract painting, but it's just really not. It's just like composing with yeah. a few kind of helpful organizational friends.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> Um, shall we move on to the next piece then?
2: Yeah. yeah let's do the chorus song, I reckon. Because then it's going yeah, to it. stay too. in the 90s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, this album, I think, was the first album I owned or first album I, I felt a.
1: Me connection.
2: too. Was it really? Yes, it was the first oh album I God. bought too.
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs> you guys, wait, can you just tell us what the name of the band and the name of the album is?
1: Uh, so it was The Cause. And actually, what's the album called again? Um, oh, no, Forgiven, Not Forgotten. Of course, it was called oh. Forgiven, Not Forgotten. <laughs> How could we <laughs> forget that? <laughs> um, yeah, from 1995. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. And you have brought the song Run Away. And why
2: do you love this song, Alice? So I love Runaway uh, because out of all the songs on this album, I think it's the one where I think her name's Andrea Cor. Cool. And her voice just feels so in the spirit of the song. It's so, yeah. there's so much air flowing through those vocal pipes. Yeah. You just, I just really feel the wish there. I feel like. In, or i felt like you know when i was listening to this and very young i felt like um i believed her a hundred percent and i'm and i mm-hmm. sometimes was i was a bit of like a cynical kid in some ways in that i'd see someone like performing in a concert and be like oh they're faking and like they're not really that character or something mm-hmm. like i'd want to i do want to sort of I didn't want to be tricked because I found that people were always tricking kids and I hated it. But I, I would hear this song and just be like, wow, she really believes it. And like she's making me believe it. And I don't know how. I don't know what, what she's doing. I don't know how this song works, but I just want to keep listening to it over and over again. And oh. I would kind of say to myself, um, apparently. So I'm told. Uh, and yeah, it just. This song was my friend from before I can remember right up until, yeah, definitely quite far into primary school.
1: Mm, Yeah, same. I remember um, because, you know, back in those days, (laughs) 20 years ago, you would like get this actual CD and you'd listen to the whole album through, which I think oh, is yeah, <laughs> it's such an art and like the the art of you know actually curating an album so that it flows really well is amazing. and um you know just listening to it all the way through the whole album and and reading the lyrics on along with the <laughs> with the recordings and
2: yeah. they kind of had like a bit of black and white sepia vibe and their eyes mm. were so And there were siblings, and you're like, oh my goodness, they're all in a band. It was this dream, it was this embodiment of a dream. And I was like, I want to run away and discover my long lost Irish siblings and form a band. (laughs) And I I want to be the lead singer, but I feel like that's too ambitious. So I'm going to say my favorite is Caroline, the (laughs) violinist. And ask my parents if I can please play violin.
1: yes yeah, that was also yeah. why i love the band because it was a cool like 90s pop band but it had a violin
2: yeah like, oh, so good so good <laughs> yeah. and, and the the reels the reels in the a lot of their songs and especially whatever i don't know if it was a trad irish reel or not in runaway but i just found it so emotive there was such this kind of windswept nature of that violin solo, and there's yeah, this yeah. moment where the song has already been super emotional, and the, and then it's this, it's this kind of post, I reckon post like the meat of the song, this kind of dessert for the rest of it, um, mm. where the violin solo switches into uh, Lydian mode. Which is not something I knew when I was five, but I did know that something happened and it sounded amazing. And instead of going da 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 da, it went da 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 da, and I was just like whoa.
1: <laughs> one note change.
0: It's yeah. oh, so, intense. <laughs> oh, so intense. Isn't that amazing though? How a, a tune, you can change one note and it completely changes how that tune is and how that tune feels. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It feels like the tiniest muscle in a facial expression and how it completely changes the expression.
1: Mm. Yeah. 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 Absolutely um and have that so have you been listening to that song or has it sort of stayed with you past your sort of teen years or
2: yeah I I go back to visit that song sometimes I wouldn't say it's like a daily listen but it I do it is a companion and Mm. I think the idea of running away has become something in my life um I I was planning to run away to France this year before COVID yeah. happened. And uh, yeah. it's fun because I've, I've been able to run away like in my own brain instead and have the, mm. the forced kind of time where you can't distract yourself with the normal things that distract you when you're at home that don't distract you when you're travelling uh, yep. because life was just put on pause. And so, yep. yeah, I don't feel too salty about not being able to go to France this time, but I, I do, <laughs> I love the idea still of like dropping everything and running away with someone and, and that and the, that person being myself, I think that is like yeah. a big romantic ideal that has stayed with me. Um, mm. Yeah. and And even also yeah. actually just the harmonies in that song, like the chords, I think the I didn't realize but when the times that I've gone back to revisit that song I'm like ah that might be where my taste for you know this thing has come from and I didn't realize Mm. I thought it was my idea
0: but there you go yeah
2: yeah
0: do you have any examples
2: of that I think maybe I could have a look through some of my like children's choir music where I I really go to town on the emotional piano accompaniment and the long Mm -hmm. held notes with you know harmonies changing underneath and and maybe there could be some parallels drawn with um i would run away and her just leaving that and the chords changing underneath Yeah.
3: yeah
1: yeah yeah that's really cool here's another parallel that alice found between runaway and her music First you'll hear the emotional changing harmonies in Runaway, with a little bit of the violin solo, and then something similar in her piece, So Strong, for children's choir.
0: You said that as a child, it was a thing that she really made you believe in. Yeah. Do you know what it was about that that made you believe?
2: I think that it was a combination of things that made me like really believe that song. Obviously, yes. the third chord in the chorus. I don't know what chord it is. It might be called mm-hmm. two. Um, perfectly articulated the the slight doubt that you might feel it and then the fourth chord is like is like actually no I'm I'm willing to accept that doubt and I'm going to run away so I feel like emotionally the chord progression in the chorus to me is like sad and wistful and actually hopeful I'm going to do this and then oh my gosh should I and yes it's inevitable it's our destiny
1: yeah that like internal monologue.
2: Yeah. And the fact that there, it's like if you looked at it on the outset and kind of didn't really engage with the song, you'd be like, oh, it's a bit lame. Like, especially, you know, looking at the 90s video clip, it's all like in slow motion yeah. and it's like there's so many wind machines. But, but <laughs> I, didn't, and I still don't believe it's lame because it feels so honest. And yeah. it's, it's this example of going really and just having you know like drums saturated in reverb and super romantic violin solos and and you're just like I don't feel like this is hamming it up at all like this is just what people feel sometimes yeah and yeah icing on that cake is just the tone color of of Andrea's voice and the the breath that she injects into it like her lungs must be so big there's so much room for <laughs> air either side of like the actual pitch coming out yeah
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so that sort of marrying of the the chord progression with the emotion and the lyrics and how Mm -hmm. that sort of all actually painted a full picture that was believable exactly
2: just like a full anthem
0: yeah Mm -hmm. amazing it's really interesting because we um Emma and I are taking this daily Dutch class right now. Oh really? While we are during yeah. this time. Yeah. Six days a week we have um Dutch class with a bunch of our friends mm. uh from like six to seven. It's great. It's been a really amazing part of this time. And yeah. um, we have little homework assignments where we each like have to write a little thing before class each day. Oh and cool. one of our one of our assignments was what was the first album that you purchased? And what was and it well, Emma's was this, was this album. And it's funny because I didn't really know the cores as a band, though now I realize I knew some of their songs. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I grew up as an Irish dancer. So like I was immersed in that world. Wow. And my, um, my first album that I bought was by a like 90s pop Scottish band, like folk pop <laughs> Scottish band <laughs> mm-hmm. called Caper Kaylee that um, is like sort of along the same vibes so though they sing in Gaelic also wow,
2: that's and so
0: cool. Yeah. they're amazing that's really and I like amazing. I found this album in a like yeah in a secondhand like clothing store I bought that album and I was reading uh did you ever read that book Bridge to Terabithia?
2: No hmm. I, I have friends who read it.
0: It was you know like a I don't know, young adult book or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was reading it at the time and I was close to the end. And there's like a huge tragedy that happens at the end that I had no idea was coming. And I went home and like put this uh, album, this Caper Kaylee album, Delirium, mm-hmm. into my like Walkman, <laughs> like put on my little like Walkman <laughs> headphones mm-hmm. and listened to that album for the first time as I finished reading the book. And then just like this tragedy happened and it was right at the same time as like this really intense like Celtic like music is happening and I feel like I'm on the hills of Scotland and also in like the nature of Terabithia, and then Whoa. like there's this tragedy and I'm sitting there crying and I'm like, I don't know, eight years old or
2: something. Wow. Well, I'm so glad I got to hear that in English because you really painted the picture for me.
0: I just think it's really interesting that sort of all three of us had somewhat of a similar experience. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. I guess it was that 90s, like, really earnest exactly. kind of thing that was just happening yeah. in the 90s that was just okay. And I kind of missed that quite a lot, That the earnestness yeah. of of the 90s vibe, which really just goes so well with anything Gaelic um, or Celtic or anything. <laughs> it's just totally. the rolling hills and the... <laughs> So many emotions. <laughs>
0: totally. Oh, my um, last question that I was going to ask you is how old were you when you started asking your parents to play the violin because of this mm. song?
2: how that happen? Well, I asked my parents to if I could play the violin when I was five, but I reckon okay. the idea had been stewing. Mm. And I think that that album had actually been around since I was one so I actually don't know if I can really say it's the first album I owned it's definitely the first album that I felt like I owned (laughs) yeah I think that's fair enough yeah yeah I just I remember just seeing them as like an example of you know this is a group of musicians pick one you want to be like and I think I I wanted to be like Andrea but um I also thought that like Caroline was a nice name and the violin was like I didn't get it yet. I didn't. I didn't know. I was mystified because I was like, "How is she doing that?" Um, mm. And I actually think that instead of asking to play the violin, I asked if I could play the viola de gamba <laughs> when I was five. <laughs> okay. Because why? <laughs> um, because we'd had a, a an early music incursion at my primary school through through music viva in schools.
0: Alice will say more about this later, but for now, a viola da gamba is a bowed string instrument that rests between the legs. It literally means "vial of the leg. It has either six or seven strings made of gut and it comes in many sizes. Unlike the violin and cello, it has frets like a guitar. It can play melodic lines, but also multiple strings at the same time to create harmony, which we call double stops if there are two notes, or chords if there are more than two. All of these sizes of violas de gamba together create a family
1: like the violin, viola, cello, and double bass. When a group of these different size gambas are played together, it becomes a consort, which is basically a bowed version of a choir. This was a really popular genre in the 16th and 17th centuries.
2: And it was... uh... Jenny Erickson the gamba player who went on yeah. to be my teacher her son was at the school so maybe she just did a concert cuz her son was at the school I'm not sure but I was a 5 year old who got to see a viola de gamba which was already amazing and that's Im- that's really incredible yeah, yeah and I asked if I could play the viola de gamba and my parents were like um what about the violin <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think I was like well actually yeah that's a that's a pretty good Second prize because you know Caroline in the <laughs> course plays it and yeah, I can I can deal.
0: So how old were you when you did start playing gamba?
2: Uh I was fifteen or sixteen when I started playing Field of Gamba. Okay. And yeah. it was really, really nice to get there. I'd played violin up until I was fifteen, but mm-hmm. I was I got by on, like, you know, a bit of musicality and never practicing and yeah. <laughs> being a, being an overachiever in other areas so I didn't feel like I could get in trouble. No one wanted to get me in trouble, you know. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I just think I it didn't really click with me, like, about, you know, practicing. And I always wanted yeah, yeah. to improvise instead. Um mm. Which is, I guess, like a you know romantic way to be like, and I knew then that I was a composer, but even then, like <laughs> you need to practice if you want to if you want to fully express what is within as an improviser, you can't just like sit down and let it out. like you have to you practice all the same, you know, and even mm-hmm. composing, you have to practice catching ideas in the net and all that. So I think I just took a while, and I'm still working on on disciplinary, aspects of my practice um mm. but at the time the the naturalness and the loveliness of playing the gamba really really was an antidote to some of the struggles that I I'd, I'd had of just not feeling like I wanted to play I yeah. think I was self-conscious yeah. about having a double chin as well when I played violin Yeah, <laughs> yeah so gamba yeah. was really like it felt like um a natural position for my body to be in and I could just yeah, yeah I just yeah for anyone who doesn't know what a gamber is you know it's like a cello but you gotta really you have to hold it with your calves and mm. I found that that worked quite well <laughs> and it just kind of yeah. sat there and I did a bit of yeah. a natural man spread and it just kind of flopped in there and Beautiful. if I flopped my my arms nicely then I could kind of reach my left arm to the fretboard quite comfortably and my, because you bow, you know, with a under, underhanded stroke, you hold from the underside. Um, that felt really natural as well. Everything mm-hmm. just felt like a ha. Huh, as a after that mm-hmm. violin, which was very like, ha. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So tense. <laughs> I reckon when I retire, the gambo will just have a huge. Uh, renaissance in my life because <laughs> oh, to be yeah. honest I, I don't play it so much at the moment I find that I really am in a in a compositional phase and mm. it's kind of high maintenance really just all the gut strings and the mm. you know adjusting your frets and all that yeah. but like when I hit my 60s me and the gamba are just gonna we're gonna make up all right I'm gonna
1: learn treble
2: and we'll make a yes. consort. Please. Oh my god! Can I be in it?
0: Yeah. I will play any of the yeah. any of the gavas.
2: Yeah, you guys both play treble, and then and then we can run a competition with our listeners. We could run it like The Bachelor, even like auditioning. Oh, yeah.
3: and yes,
1: <laughs> i that's a great idea. Roses, actually. So oh Oh,
2: perfect this is really falling into (laughs) place we
0: fly everybody we fly everybody to the same place we have like a very intensive week on the beach somewhere and there's like all this drama because all the strings are breaking yeah (laughs) you
2: did not receive a rose
0: yeah
1: (laughs) all right well I'm glad that that's sorted um so I guess with this kind of upbringing of you know hearing all of the beautiful earnest 90s sounds Mm. and aesthetics and then learning quite an unusual instrument during your high school years. Mm. Um, Did that then put you into a a certain mindset when you started then composing or did the improvising from your gamba? what was your journey into composing basically?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I, um, that's actually, that's, like a weirdly intuitive question. That's like exactly how it happened in a way. Cool. Gamble was, was kind of my gateway into composing, at yeah. least into composing things that I liked. Mm. And I took, I'm still adjusting to, oh no, I think I can say I've got there, into composing things I like. But just into, <laughs> yeah, I think when I first got interested in maybe becoming a composer, it was when I was about, yeah, 15 or 16 um and I was at a really musical school so I was really lucky to be to even know that a composer was a job um mm. let mm-hmm. alone to be compo- to be uh surrounded by all these incredible musicians both on the staff and as students and I was like oh my god everyone's so good um and, yeah, with composing, I remember thinking that it had to be impressive and so my first uh, composition for my final year in school, um, I had um, Paul Stanhope as a teacher who is a pretty, like, prolific Australian composer and he, like, bless him, he kind of, he was just doing his job. He was just like, if you want good marks, just try composing in a mode. Um so that the markers can see, you know, you've done something different, because everyone just composes in like a normal scale.
1: Scales and modes are the basis of music. They're kind of like the
0: alphabet of musical language and are really useful for shaping the way music is organised. Modes are constructed by using different combinations of whole steps and half steps. This is what a normal major scale sounds like. It's a type of mode actually called the Ionian mode.
1: And here's an example of the Lydian mode, which Alice referred to earlier when talking about Runaway. You can look up modes on the internet. We found a particularly sweet video of an old British man explaining modes that we'll link to in the show notes.
2: Pick and like make your own mode and compose in that mode. Um, Interesting. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. And it could have been good and I I understand the exercise in, you know, liberating yourself from, like, your first idea. But my whole understanding of music up until that point was was harmonic and Mm. so I found it extremely limiting to have notes be forbidden because Mm. I loved making, like, really mixed colourful harmony and stuff and so... Mm. As a result, I wrote a piece that was just really not very good. Um mm. or it just and it's hard to say that a piece is bad or good, but it didn't sound like it wanted to exist. It didn't sound mm. like it was every decision was made on purpose. And I had one other piece to write that year. And so the the aforementioned kind of meh piece took <laughs> all year. And then yeah. this other piece took a weekend and it was <laughs> Classic. Um <laughs> it was for it was for Viola de Gamba duet and I just composed mm. it at the kitchen table when my family were like out at one of my brother's soccer games or something. And <laughs> I remember it was just this revelation where I was like I played stuff on the gamba and then wrote it down and and it was so simple or <laughs> something. My first mm. The first Blair composition was for string quartet and harp, I think. And I and I couldn't quite wrap my head around all the instruments and everything they could do, especially the harp. Uh, mm, but yeah. with this, I was like, I know how gambas work. I've played this for like two years almost. I can, I know how to, I've played enough scales and I know what sonorities I like. I know what double stops I like. And I, was, and I discovered this kind of like, oh, because double stops are so easy and chords are so easy. Like imagine two people at the same time, like it was this whole thing that I could really, I was able yeah. to imagine it because I could do it. Um, yeah. And I remember I took that piece or a draft of it, I think I took like page one to my lesson with Paul on Monday and he just thought it was he was like really blown away and it was one of my earliest most treasured memories of of praise and encouragement and there was one particular bar where he said "Ah, why didn't I think of that and I was like saving this for later yeah (laughs) pat yourself on the back for that one (laughs) yeah I was just glowing like yeah, (laughs) yeah that was really so yeah even though the Gambo and I don't see each other so much right now, like I'll never be able to repay it for, for that gift, for, for teaching me that composition should be about joy and, and wonder and, and not about being impressive and using a mode because you, you'll get better marks.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. That yeah. actually connects really nicely to the Westlake, if you're happy for me to take Great. it there. That's great. that was something that really struck me about uh Nigel Westlake's work when I stumbled upon it around that time when I was kind mm. of finishing up high school was that it sounded so full of wonder and yeah like childlike enjoyment mm. and it was it couldn't have been further from the the eyes that were going to mark my composition at the end of the year
3: yeah
2: uh, it felt like that it felt that nigel was like a conduit for this kind of pure joyful music that had just kind of come and poured through him and that he had just put no filters on it hmm. hashtag no filter nigel yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it just felt like he'd shown up every day and just written what came um and composed music that I thought was stunning and that maybe you know I don't know how many people agreed with me like I mean he's pretty popular but yeah, um,
3: yeah.
2: he's but yeah I wouldn't say he's kind of heralded in like the academic world as like a leading Australian composer he's more of a kind mm. of um well-loved yeah film composer if anything um, not that that is yeah. below no
1: but there are those prejudices
2: yeah absolutely yeah. yeah but to me he's just like the epitome. I'm just like if I could write music that sound that in which I follow my heart as much as it sounds like you have like that mm. I would be so happy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I th- I love um yeah the the movement that you sent us that we'll put on the Spotify yeah. playlist is so evocative and I mean it makes sense we quickly realised from the Wikipedia page that um, it was written for an IMAX, you know, film about yeah. Antarctica. Um, and so you can really see how he's composed that to, to sort of represent or to, you know, accompany those huge, vast kind of um, images of, of yeah. Antarctica. Um, and I think also um, one thing that I noticed from the, that movement as well as the the different uses of the instruments within the orchestra he doesn't actually use yeah. sort of the typical kind of you know a heavy string sound where the strings are always playing and then kind of everything building around mm. the string sound he uses a lot of plucked instruments i mean it's got guitar and harp um, as quite prominent instruments in, in the piece. And then, and also a lot of tuned percussion instruments. So a lot of kind of plucked and hit, um, instruments, and then kind of juxtaposed by the lush string sound, which I find really, it just engages you in this different level. I, I feel is that something that you kind of noticed when you were first listening to it? And
2: has that influenced you as well or? Yeah, definitely. I think it, it does sound, yeah, a little bit kaleidoscopic in a way. It's like suddenly mm-hmm. suddenly our focus mm-hmm. is over here on this part of the orchestra and suddenly we're over here and, and it's lush in a different kind of way. As you say, it's, it's lush yeah. in this kind of sparse, tasty way where everyone gets their mm-hmm. turn under the microscope. Yeah, I think yeah, that sense of of being led by the imagery, or maybe the imagery that he had in his head, as opposed to bar lines or meter or something. It's like it's like all those things serve the imagery as opposed to the other way around. Um, hmm. yeah.
3: yeah,
2: yeah. Do you identify with that in in the terms of
1: sort of taking ideas from the imagery in your head, or does it come the other way around or does it depend on the the time that you're composing or?
2: I think, yeah, I don't have too much experience composing for like a moving image, um, but I definitely think in gesture a lot and and mm. ribbon-like shapes and, and contour and I think heaps about that, um, mm. so much so that it would kind of like impede me a little bit if I'm, composing for someone else's film um really (laughs) and yeah and I think for for Penguin Ballet and for the Antarctica Suite it's like I've never seen the Antarctica film and I've never really felt the need to because I I kind of feel like I have like knowing that it's called that knowing that it's about Penguin Ballet like I I feel like I've already imagined the most extraordinary penguin ballet that could exist and I might be a bit disappointed by the film I'd be like stop narrating shut up yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) kind of like reading an awesome book and then seeing the film adaptation and being a bit disappointed
2: yeah yeah (laughs) who introduced you to that piece actually um I think I found it myself I think I decided I wanted to be a composer and the composers Australian composers I knew about were Ross Edwards, um, Paul Stanhope, there were other ones. Um, (laughs) oh, um, Katz Katschernan. Yeah, of course. And I, I went on like, yeah, a bit of a spree, uh, looking for Australian composers that I, that I identified with. And I wouldn't say that it was like the easiest thing. Sometimes Mm, I, I didn't feel that I did identify with their music and I was searching for, uh, a place in in that world to see if there was a place for me, yeah. and the sort of music I wanted to compose, and I and I feel like I stumbled across Nigel's music and just devoured it, and and thought, you know, someone like him gets to call themselves an Australian composer, and so that means I can too. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have a question about.
1: Um writing for particular instruments. Mm. So um, obviously the Viola de Gamba definitely was very influential on in how how you came about composing um, and that, uh, as we were talking about, is a very old instrument. Uses um, mm. uses strings made of gut instead of metal. There's six, seven strings. Yeah, sometimes six, sometimes seven. <laughs> um, and, you know, a different type of bow and you know, completely different instrument to what a lot of the sort of mainstream modern modern instruments look like. I know that you've written a few pieces for older instruments. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have to kind of go into a different mindset when you are writing
2: for those instruments or does it not matter kind of what instruments you're writing for? I would reckon actually that I need to go into a mindset for modern instruments because... Right. I found that writing for people who play historical music is just like the best thing ever. ever. Like it's the yes. that has been. It's so true, though. It's so true. Amazing. Why? Well, <laughs> tell us why. You're right. Because <laughs> you guys know how to how to bring dots to life, how to mm. inject magical phrasing and how to to search for the composer's intention because you're always looking for it because it's not written in the way that it gets written these days. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, just I remember some of my first, like, professional work was doing arrangements of um, Christmas carols for the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra and I just – I, I was saying, you know, do you guys mind if I keep it kind of bare of dynamics and stuff? And they were like, yeah, sure, yeah, that's fine. And it and it meant that, yeah, that everyone just like put so much kind of spice into it. It was so good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I kind of have this fantasy that, that I work with enough musicians that people kind of know how to play an Alice Chance piece one day and, and that, It's not really worth me putting in every tiny phrasing detail that I'm after because I would hope that what I've expressed in the harmony and and in the music um, speaks to whoever's playing it and and they have their own ownership of it and and their way that they want to express the piece. Um, Yeah. And I have found so far that people who play historical music, who play early music are... are really good at at you know saying yes to that and and giving it a go and having the most kind of pleasing results to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can say from personal experience that the trio that you wrote for me <laughs> and dedicated to my mum was yes. really easy to play in in terms of of creating a sound and a story and emotions through that that music was oh, just
2: you. So easy mm. and just so enjoyable. a so, few oh, because I remember I had that kind of awkward rubato, like it was like rubato but not or something. I remember. There yeah, was I really liked that because um,
1: you gave us the space to then choose how we wanted to play those phrases. It was kind of a you know combination of a few different phrases that kind of you know well, I think it was a violin and viola playing mm. phrases a seventh apart that's right very interesting yeah (laughs) which you wouldn't have thought would work but really does um and let and it actually meant that then you encouraged the musicians to really communicate and choose for themselves in that moment and it would change every day that we play it every moment that we you know got to those phrases we'd have to be like okay you know, internally thinking, how are we feeling? How do we want these phrases to go at the moment? You know, are they going to be more languid, to, you know, and, and lush and slow today, or are some of them going to go faster? Or will they, you know, question and answer themselves, and and that's that's so fun as as a performer to then feel like the you know the composer's giving you that permission to
2: play around with what they've written for yeah. you so thanks it yeah. makes me so happy yeah because yeah. I do there is that inbuilt anxiety of like am yeah. I being lazy you know or, or am I being groundbreaking
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well and for us on the other side like we know we have to um make a lot of decisions and do a lot of interpreting with old music because that's the only option
3: exactly. right yeah.
0: and it is it's good to, for me to hear that you want us to do the same thing with your music because for some reason it's also easy to fall into the trap of thinking like, well, they have a specific idea in their head and I have to be able to figure out exactly what that is mm-hmm. and like I have to be able to play it exactly the way the composer wants because that's sort of the mindset that that we are sort of told mm-hmm. It's like try and get inside the composer's head. But that only works to a certain degree, right? Yeah. Like
2: I think if if that's the expectation then the composer, the composer should write a treatise on how to play their music.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which honestly, some old composers, of course, did. Yeah. We have read that.
2: Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but even those.
0: Know. But that's the funny thing is that
1: even those won't won't give you the full story. Um, mm-hmm. And no, and actually, no composer, living or dead, you're never going to know exactly what's in their head because we can never know what's yeah. in anyone's heads. Um, yeah. So actually, no. sort of just taking yourself away from that. That obsession is is just really liberating and gives you license to then
2: feel like you're collaborating with that composer and you can yeah, create something yeah. special from yeah, that. Freedom. I have this this dream that people will play my music like it's their favorite song. And it doesn't have to be. Yeah. But yeah, play or, or sing it just for the duration of the piece as if it is your favorite song. And I yeah. and I hope to write music that it's not too hard to imagine that.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I have no doubt. <laughs> great. Um, sadly, we have to kind of start wrapping this yeah, conversation up. So I feel like this could just like away. keep going forever. <laughs> forever. <laughs> um, we have um, one final question that we ask at the end of all, um, all of our interviews. Uh, it's a little bit of a funny question for you since you are a composer and you play many instruments, but uh, it, is there a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you're really jealous of?
2: Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that is hard. Yeah, I reckon I do have an answer to this. Oh, I would I would say the um, Ravel uh, Miroir. um hmm All those all those friends, especially um the the I feel so pretentious using my French accent, but Le Barc sur l'océan, the boat on the ocean. Um if I were able to play that I would be very happy. Oh, and also his um tombeau de couperin. Oh yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah.
2: But yeah, if I I, if I were an orchestra that would feel very nice to play (laughs) as (laughs) well. Yeah
0: that's like your orchestra dream piece yeah
2: totally if i get reincarnated as an orchestra
1: i'd come (laughs) see you as an orchestra
2: oh thanks (laughs) me too You
0: guys (laughs) (laughs) um alice it was so nice having you thank you so much for talking to us
2: thanks for having Um, me
0: is there a way that we can best get our listeners to support you and find your stuff and get in touch with you
2: so if you are listening and want to support me I'd love you to go to my website it's alicechance.com and on there there are lots of fun things to do there are links to my youtube channel which is budding and growing and also a kind of a little a project that I have um where I kind of and make aleatoric music that you can you can choose how it goes um and that awesome. is really at the moment only available on my website and cool. i've had a couple of people that i've like replied to their emails and they've clicked on my link at the bottom of the email and gone and had a play with it and it's just made me so happy
3: awesome <laughs>
2: cool <All laughs> so right. yeah, we right we're gonna
3: good.
1: have to do that yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll put your the link to that in our show notes yeah
2: yep. sounds good yeah, yeah. yeah. perfect yeah
1: thanks so much for tuning
0: in to outside the music box we hope you enjoyed our chat with alice chance if so please rate and review this podcast it really makes a difference in the algorithm and helps our visibility we'd also love to hear from you if you have any questions or want to share the music that you love,
1: you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on Facebook and
0: Instagram at musicboxconcerts. In the show notes, we've included links to two Spotify playlists, one for the main pieces we discuss and another for the other pieces we chat about. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Alice is going to alicechance.com, where you can find all sorts of fun, interactive ways to engage with her, as well as a link to her YouTube channel. See you next time, outside the music box.